2: Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Welcome to the Tuesday night edition of the program. Uh, If you want to join our late-night national town hall conversation, give us a call, 833-4825-337, 8334-VALDEZ. And a couple of headlines here. The Department of Justice is uh, investigating... The member of the squad known as Corey Bush, Corey Bush, yep. Why? Well, remember uh, when she was like, "We got to defund the police," but she spent a whole bunch of money on private security. Well, it turns there turns out there were some shenanigans involved in that. I'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, we also have uh, these pro life protesters were found guilty today of violating the FACE Act and now face up to eleven years in prison. Tough tough, tough. I'll get into that in a little bit, too. Um, Then we have uh, the parents of a fallen soldier killed in a drone strike. They're still waiting for a call from President Biden. Now, it was rumored that Biden wasn't sure if he was going to go to receive the the caskets of these uh, heroes. uh, But he's since, I guess, succumbed to the pressure, the public pressure, and he will be there. And uh, of course, In true Biden fashion, he still hasn't decided if he will um, and how he's going to respond to this fatal drone strike. All right. Thank you, Joe Biden. Those are just some of the things that are happening that we're going to get into. And, of course, we're going to get into some other stuff. We're going to talk about the border. Uh, I want to talk about that. That's a big deal. There's some funny stuff in Congress today. Uh, We're also going to talk uh, about um, the importance of history. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But right now, I want to uh, play a clip of audio. And this is an interesting one. And you've probably seen the video clip online. But Congressman Robert Garcia is a Democrat from California. This guy today um, should be um, embarrassed, right? Why? Because he did such an amazing job playing, uh, basically creating an ad for Trump. Right. A a border ad that included what looked like a a photo from a meme that an alligator and a moat. And it was just really, really terrific. Um, And I can't do it justice. So I'm going to
3: let him uh, say what he said. Listen to this. I want to remind the public that Donald Trump and House Republicans also have their own ideas for the border. So let's review the majority's border ideas that they've actually presented. Here they are. Donald Trump actually has said that he wants to build alligator moats along the border. That's one of his incredible ideas. Another idea that Donald Trump has promoted is he actually wants to electrify the border fence and maybe even put some spikes on the border. That's another Donald Trump and MAGA majority border idea. Another idea, which I'm not sure how, how well it would go, is he wants to actually bomb Northern Mexico with missiles. That's another Trump idea. And finally, I think one of the ones that I think um, is the most grotesque is suggestions that instead we should maybe just shoot migrants in the legs as they cross the border. So once again, the Donald Trump and MAGA plan is alligator moats, bombing Northern Mexico, shooting migrants in the legs, and electrifying the fence and putting spikes on them. That is the Donald Trump border plan. And so again, we are here today with these horrific ideas being presented constantly by the former president. This is all about trying to get Donald Trump reelected. Donald Trump himself is saying he wants no solutions this year out of the Congress. And Secretary Mayorkas and President Biden continue to offer solutions every day and are ready to actually talk about real immigration and border solutions in this country.
2: Now, of course, that's California Democrat, uh, Congressman Robert Garcia. And he's being mocked online for giving Trump a free campaign ad. I mean, all you need at the end of him saying all of that was, I'm Donald Trump and I approve this message, (laughs) right? You would think this guy was a surrogate for Trump. Uh, Now, after uh, trying to mock uh, President Trump's uh, past proposals on the border, um, the moat, the alligators, the, you know, using the military to strike at narco terrorists or labeling them as narco terrorists and then using the military to go after them, uh, all of those things were were things that he discussed. He left out a lot of context trying to make it sound funny. But when when the border is now the when the border is now the number one issue, right? Uh, last Monday, not this Monday, the previous Monday, uh, Harvard Harris Poll said that the previous number one issue on voters' minds was inflation. Now, it's the border. So this is the number one issue on people's minds. And you've got this guy out here saying these things. Uh, yesterday, we had a caller that called in and said, you know, can we put a bounty on them and to have private citizens, you know, just round them up. Right. <laughs> so clearly there is public sentiment for for a lot of this. And uh, Garcia made these remarks earlier today during a House Judiciary Committee meeting to uh, advance the impeachment of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. And uh, they're trying to to get him out Uh, again, symbolic uh, because the real problem is Biden, not Mayorkas. But I guess one step at a time. And him accusing the the Republicans of of trying to slow down what's happening at the border because of uh, a stalemate that they're at with this uh, deal really is just the Democrats trying to seize on timing. Again, we must ask ourselves, is the problem at the border the result of Congress? Of course not. It's never been the result of Congress. Like, never in a million years has, have, has anybody, any president anywhere, said, you know what, we can secure the border, but it's Congress, until Joe Biden decided to say that. Saying, we got to secure the border. we got to, you know, the pressure. That, that's what Joe Biden does. And it's a sad thing. So when Garcia's out here saying, I want to remind the public that Donald Trump and House Republicans have their own ideas, including a, a moat filled with alligators, I mean, this is just going to draw laughs, right? It's clownish. It, it, uh, I think most people are going to look at this and say, sir, uh, we don't look at you as credible anymore. You really only appeal to a sliver of society when you, when you make these types of um, displays in Congress, in my opinion. I mean, it's pretty clear, right? You've got a very slim majority, but the majority is there in the House, and they've said, look, the deal as it is now is dead on arrival. Is 5,000 a day, not happening. You know, where they want to increase the number to uh, 5,000 people a day. It's it's just crazy time at at the border. So that's part of what's going on there. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit more about what's going on in Texas, uh, the razor wire, securing the border, and a lot more. So I want you to stick with me. Plus, I want you to weigh in uh, on this topic. We're going to be talking about immigration for a little bit. Uh, this evening. So if you want to chime in on that, feel free. 833 482 337 8334-Valdez is the phone number. And uh, I also want to just uh, give you a little bit of a sneak peek. Uh, in the bottom half of hour number two, we're going to be remembering World War II and uh, looking at some of our history on that. So for those of you that are history buffs and are, are always looking forward to something like that, Make sure you stay tuned for that. That's coming up after our discussion on immigration. And, of course, after that, it's Open Phone America, where you guys get to call in on everything and anything under the sun. And uh, we're going to get to a couple of really fun topics in that one. So I'm um, looking forward to your calls on that as well. Anyway, here's the number again, 833-482-5337, 833-4-Valdez. This is
1: America at Night
5: president, instead of trying to send Texas a restraining order, I will send them reinforcements. Instead of fighting border states, I will use every resource tool and authority of the U.S. president to defend the United States of America from this horrible invasion that is taking place right now. There's never been anything like it. Texas will be given full support, and I will deploy all necessary military and law enforcement resources to seal up the final section of border.
2: So that's President Trump explaining uh, what he would do to help Texas. And, of course, Texas is uh, putting up more razor wire as the, the court's telling them that they can't keep it up and uh, they're doing what they have to do to protect their citizens. And this is an interesting place, right, because all of us believe, most of us believe in federalism, and 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 we should. that the, These are, um, you know, national security matters should be handled by the federal government. However, when you have a federal government led by a radical uh, Democrats that are just hell-bent on opening up the southern border to anybody and everybody, then what what's left for a governor to do? And, and this is where it gets tricky. So good on Texas for doing what they've got to do and getting creative here. And I want to dig into this with Hans von Spakovsky. He's um, the uh, senior legal fellow at the Edwin, Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at Heritage. That was a mouthful for me. I need more coffee. Hans, welcome back, sir. Thanks for having me, Rich. You bet. You bet. So I want to get the legal angle on this. uh, And you're always great at that uh, because it's interesting, right? That's what this is, right? We're splitting hairs on the law here. And it's like the letter of the law isn't matching up with the spirit of the law right about now because we have a bad actor in the White House, at least in my opinion. Um, What say you and how do we move forward with this?
6: Well, one of the things that the media mostly has been getting wrong is I've seen these reports by folks saying that, oh, well, uh, uh, Greg Abbott in Texas, they're breaking the law and disobeying court orders by continuing to put up, um, the barbed wire fencing they put up. That is absolutely false, Mm -hmm. um, the lawsuit that got filed uh, by Texas against the Biden administration was over this. As you know, Texas started putting up barbed wire fencing. They didn't put it on federal lands. They only put it on state-owned property and private property, where the private property owners had said, yeah, you, you can put this up. And the lawsuit got filed by Texas when the Biden administration started sending the Border Patrol in to cut holes in the fencing. Um, mm-hmm. The, what the Supreme Court did in an emergency appeal by the Biden administration was simply say that the injunction that had been issued by a lower court, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, had issued an injunction saying, You, Biden administration, you are not allowed to cut or remove this wire. All the Supreme Court did is say, Well, the injunction is dissolved while the case is on appeal. That was not a decision on the merit. So, the Biden administration, yeah, they can go in and try to cut the wire, but there was no court order of any kind telling Texas they can't continue to keep putting up wire. And (laughs) in fact, (laughs) uh, as you probably saw, there has been news within just the last couple of days that the Biden administration has backed off and said they're no longer going to try to do that to cut holes in the fencing and and for. For those who didn't see it, look, I read the lower court decisions and the the courts were scathing in their criticism of the Biden administration. What they said was that the Biden administration, not only are they doing absolutely nothing to stop or prevent illegal aliens um, getting across the border, they apparently are doing everything they can to help them right. get across the border. And, and the example <laughs> they gave, the court gave, <laughs> was that... Um, Texas had video of Border Patrol agents cutting holes in the barbed wire fencing and then putting a climbing rope through the fence so the aliens could get through it and up into the U.S. And there was a Border Patrol in the middle of the river simply sitting by watching all these aliens wading across the river and refusing to do anything to stop them and turn them back. That's how complicit the Biden administration is in trying to make sure the border stays open.
2: Yeah, you know, Hans von Spakovsky, this is very um, alarming, I think, to most people. And that's why it's become the number one issue, according to the Harvard-Harris poll from a week ago Monday. Uh, It's overtaken inflation. And I think people are, are rightfully concerned about what's going on at the board, especially when you see these videos. And I've seen the video you're talking about, about cutting the, uh, into the into the fence. It's remarkable. Right. And it makes you think who's who and what's what. And um, I had a guest last night that was saying, look, uh, we all love our uh, service member. And he was saying, we love all of our, our, our brothers in arms. But at some point, you have to say, is what I'm doing the right thing for the country in the name of a pension or a paycheck? And, and, and there's a lot of uh, dissent amongst even the rank and file about what's going on with with what's happening at the border. And I don't know that uh, this gets fixed immediately, but I think we've seen this time and again with the administration coming after Texas for being as creative as they can be. Uh, We saw it with the buoys. Uh, Now we're seeing it with this. Thankfully they're relenting on this. Uh, But ultimately I guess we, um, I guess all of us, right? Most of us uh, that are bystanders on the sidelines, we want to see Texas win and we want them to to we want them to be creative. And ultimately, do you think that they'll be able to bring a case that makes its way to the Supreme Court where they can say, look, this is a a bona fide invasion and um, we have to protect ourselves because the federal government is derelict in their responsibility?
6: Oh, I think it is going to get to the Supreme Court. Um, What's going to happen there? I don't know. I mean, I hope Texas will win, particularly given that all the states are on its side, and particularly because the, the key issue here is that when the Biden administration says that Texas is somehow hindering or preventing enforcement of federal immigration law, that that is totally wrong. Uh, the, the state is doing everything it can to help enforce federal immigration law. It's the Biden administration that is that is uh, not only not complying or enforcing the law, but actually violating it by uh, bringing as many illegal aliens in as, as possible. And I'm hoping that the court will see that uh, and rule in the state's favor. Now, the other thing that's come up, and I think this is an important point, is that uh you know there have been democrats in texas and elsewhere who have been urging joe biden to take over the texas national guard because the texas national guard right has has been mobilized by governor abbott well uh federal law does not allow him to do that under the current circumstances and i think that's very clear and if biden tried to do that uh I think he would be going far outside of what federal law uh, says he can do.
2: All right. Well, let's let's dig into that a little bit when we come back. Folks, we're on with Hans von Spakovsky. Uh, he's the manager of election law reform and the initiative there at the Heritage Foundation and senior legal fellow at the Edwin Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Uh, we're coming right back. We're going to discuss that and more. Don't go anywhere.
5: I want to listen to you rich all the time
1: america at night with rich valdez
2: all right amigos welcome back familia and we're discussing whether joe biden will go too far if he decides to nationalize the national guard in an effort to usurp the authority of the governor in texas that's using them to secure his state border and uh i don't know the ins and outs of it but hans von spakovsky does He's the manager of the Election Law Reform Initiative and senior legal fellow at the Ed Meese Center for Legal and Judicial Studies at the Heritage Foundation, and he's still with us. Hans, uh, what say you?
6: Yeah, he he doesn't have the right to do that, and let me explain why. There's a couple of federal statutes that govern the National Guard. National Guard is basically the modern equivalent of state militias, and they are under the control of state governors. Uh, there is a federal statute that allows the president to call the national guard state national guards up into active duty because they're a part of our military reserve in time of war or national emergency but not without the consent of the governor so mm. he even if he wants to call them into federal service He's got to have the consent of the governor. There's only one real exception to that, and that is if they're needed for foreign service. That only happens when we're fighting wars abroad, and that's what happened during the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Now, the only other possibility would be if he tried to use what's called the Insurrection Act um, to call them up. That allows the president, if there is a rebellion going on... uh, or if it's – and this is, this is language right of the statute – if it's impractical to enforce the laws of the United States by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings, uh, well, there's no insurrection, there's no rebellion going on, and there's no court orders, as we were talking about before, that Texas has somehow uh, is somehow not obeying. So he's got no basis under the Insurrection Act to also try to nationalize the National the national Guard. So unless he basically, uh, once again, abuses his power and tries to do that, uh, he doesn't have a legal right to do it. And, and can you imagine, Rich, imagine what would happen if he tried to do that, if he tried to claim that there's a rebellion or an insurrection going on in Texas, and he tried to order the Texas National Guard to stand down, well, the Nash, Texas National Guard is made up of what? Texans. That's right. Are they, who, who are they going to listen to? Uh, Joe Biden in Washington, D.C. or their local commanders? Are they going to be called out against their fellow Texans? I, I don't think so. And I don't think he would even want to try to risk that.
2: No, I think he runs the risk of causing an insurrection. <laughs> yes. It's just, a, it's, yes. A, it's just a crazy idea. Uh, But, you know, oftentimes I feel like Joe Biden does opt to exercise the the most um, uh, egregious or the most um, crazy option. You know, um, even this one, for example, and it's a little off topic, but just the fact that these three soldiers getting killed or even the 13 and when we left Afghanistan and and there's no response other than, you know, a few words from, from a podium. Joe Biden has typically taken the the very lackadaisical approach to doing things when it comes to foreign policy. And then, you know, occasionally they'll get aggressive with domestic policy. And it makes you wonder, you know, why is there such an impetus from this administration on being so heavy handed towards the American citizen? I don't know.
6: Well, I tell you a part. Part of what's going on, and I think this is actually the main thing that's going on in the immigration area, is is look at the people who Joe Biden hired and who he brought into the White House. If you look at all of those advisors, what you find is that they they all came from radical left-wing advocacy groups, mostly headquartered in Washington. And so, for example, on the immigration front... All of the people that are his advisors are individuals who are, uh, they believe we should have open borders. They think our immigration laws are racist and discriminatory, and they don't believe in uh, enforcing them and preventing illegal aliens from coming in. The other part of this is that you have, I think, very cynical uh, for example, political consultants on the Democratic side who say, listen, the more illegal aliens we get in, the better, because eventually they're going to be able to vote. And right. when they vote, they're going to vote for us. And that's going to help us retain power.
2: Well, that's not only sinister, but I don't know, semi treasonous. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. No, I, I agree. And
6: look, anybody who doubts, that thinks I'm exaggerating. Just look at the, the 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 start of this. Remember, New York recently passed an ordinance to allow mm-hmm. aliens, including illegal aliens, to vote. The District of Columbia has done the same thing. These moves are all being made in these uh, democratically controlled urban areas, uh, and they want to push this. That This is the start of it, of making sure that you really don't have to be a citizen to vote.
2: Now, Hans, this is a good question, and you're the perfect person to ask. Um, I understand that what they're trying to do, and I understand, like on paper, for you to get a driver's license, for example, I, I'm born in Brooklyn, but I got my license in Jersey. I moved to Jersey, and I had to prove that I was a citizen one way or the other when I got my license when I was, I think, 18 years old. And from there on, I've always been able to register and do whatever once you're in the system. But when you have these states that are now changing these rules and saying, OK, we can, um, you know, we're going to offer driver's licenses or work uh, w- work permits uh, that allow you to drive or whatever it is for people that are um, uh, in the country illegally. This opens a door that may be very difficult to shut where people are now going to be automatically registered in some states. Right. They're trying that in Pennsylvania and other states. Right. Um, a- and how would anybody stop it or even vet it?
6: Well, they can't. And that's, in fact, one of the reasons why automatic voter registration is a very bad idea. Um, Look, there have been numerous incidents. People can Google this and find it in states like California, like Illinois, that put in automatic voter registration where their systems, uh, there have been incidents where they have found that their system has automatically registered to vote people who are not. U.S. citizens. Pennsylvania just put in automatic voter registration. The Democratic governor put it in. There wasn't a statute passed by the legislature. It was a Democratic governor. And people forget, just a couple of years ago, the Secretary of State of Pennsylvania was forced to resign in disgrace after it was discovered that their DMV had been registering aliens to vote for many, many years. And ever since then, um, the state government has been refusing to say how many aliens got registered and how many of them voted.
2: Absolutely crazy talk right here, honestly. It, it makes me think it's like, uh, OK, so we see the problem. We know where it's coming from, but we can't do anything to stop it uh, other than, you know, get you know guys like you that are, you know, well-versed uh, on these legal matters and are out there on the front lines. But. It, it seems like the, the deck is stacked against us. Hans von Spakovsky, don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. I want to wrap up on this point. And then I also want to find out um, your thoughts on why Biden keeps saying he doesn't have the authority to to shut down the border when every other president who's wanted to has been able to. So we're going to do that and more, plus your calls, 833-482-5337, 833-4VALDEZ.
1: This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Is America? This is night. This is Rich Valdez.
7: I all I can do. give me the power. I've asked for the very day I got it off. Give me the
2: borders patrol. Give me the people. Give me the people who judge. Give me the people who can stop this. So that's President Joe Biden uh, entering Marine One saying, give me the border control. Give me the people who can stop this. What? Who? What is going on here? Aren't you the commander in chief, the leader of the free world? What is going on here, Um, Hans von Spakovsky, with Joe Biden saying all of these crazy things?
6: Well, he's running a con game. I mean, that's literally what he's doing. And I'll give you one, one quick example. Look four days ago, the the White House put out a statement by Joe Biden saying, oh, you need to pass that horrible negotiated immigration bill that's being worked on in the Senate because it'll give me the legal authority to shut down the border, he said. And he promised that if if the bill was given to him the day he signed it, he would shut down the border. Look, the reason that's a con game is right now the president has the power to shut down the border there's a federal statute that specifically says when the president finds that the entry of any aliens would be detrimental to the interests of the u.s he can for as long as he deems necessary suspend their entry and for anybody who thinks uh a president can't do this remember the travel ban donald Mm -hmm. trump Cut down the border to all aliens from a certain number of countries. He was sued. He was challenged over that, actually, by the political allies of Joe Biden, Democrats. It went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court found in Trump's favor and said, under that specific federal statute, he's got the power to do this. So when Joe Biden says he needs this additional authority, that's that's a, a, a total cock and bull story. He could do it right now. He doesn't want to. And anybody in the Senate who believes that if they pass this bill and give him this, all this added money that he wants, that he's actually going to shut the border, that, they're crazy if, if they think he's actually going to do that.
2: You know, this is the part – again, I'm, I am not – uh, the manager of the election law reform initiative or a senior legal fellow at the Edme Center, right? But I can tell you, just on, on its face, I hear that, and it sounds like like it's BS to me because we've seen it happen, right? Uh, Trump did right. so much at the border. And, and I wonder, like, who is he really fooling other than maybe a handful of really partisan, hyperpartisan partisan uh, folks? Uh, do, do you feel like that message is resonating? I, I don't know if it is or it isn't, but I keep hearing it as if it's gospel truth.
6: Well, I think people are a lot of people are starting to understand that uh, everything he says about the border crisis isn't true, and particularly, all all you got to do is remind people when he says, "Oh, I need this added legal authority to close the border." Well, just say, "Well, gosh, can't you remember the travel man?" (laughs) You know, that all you got to do is say that, and all the publicity about that, and suddenly they'll say, "Oh, yeah, wait a minute." Trump actually did close the border, and and he was able to do it. So, like I said, it's just a—this deal that they're talking about is just a political ploy to give them more money to be able to process even more illegal aliens into the country. If if he really wanted to secure the border, right now he would shut it down, he would uh, help. The state of Texas put in that barbed wire fencing until they can put in a more permanent wall. He would put back in place the remain in Mexico right. policy, which was which was helping to stop a lot of the asylum fraud that was going on. To taking all kinds of steps like that would actually stem this problem. It wouldn't entirely eliminate it, but let me tell you that the number of aliens coming across the border would start diminishing
8: greatly.
2: Now, Hans, in the couple of minutes we have left, what do you what are your thoughts on this? Uh, you know, we've had some days where there were 10,000, uh, ten thousand, eleven thousand, twelve thousand uh, crossings at the border, astronomical numbers, you know, record breaking. And now we have a bill that says, well, you know, if we enact this bill, we'll bring it's only five thousand a day. <laughs> and you know, we have Obama's DHS Secretary Jay Johnson saying if we had more than more than five hundred a day, that it would be absolute bedlam, uh, a disaster. I think is the word he used. And my, my question to you is why is this being proposed and do you think it it has any legs?
6: I don't think it has any legs. Uh, it's even if you could get through the Senate and boy, there are a lot of senators uh, like Ted Cruz and others pointing out that it's just a political ploy. Um, there's no way it could get through the U S house. So it, it's just not going to happen. And you're right. They want, 5,000 a day being basically okay, there shouldn't be anyone getting across the border illegally. And uh, like I said, there's all these steps you could take to, to stop that from happening. And in fact, look, whatever folks may think of Donald Trump, he actually implemented those steps when he was president and the numbers dramatically fell of the number of illegal aliens getting across the border because of those steps that he had put in. And everybody should remember, what was the first thing that Joe Biden did when he got into office? He canceled yeah. every single one of those policies.
2: And then he, then he also attacked energy. It was a crazy weekend for right. Biden coming into office. Hans von Spakovsky, thanks for being with us. Excellent legal analysis. Um, Let everybody know how they can keep up to speed with all the great work that you're doing. Sure,
6: they can go to heritage.org, heritage.org, and even when I publish elsewhere, it gets republished at Heritage.
2: Outstanding. Check out Hans at heritage.org. Hans von Spakovsky, you are a gentleman, a scholar, and a patriot, and I appreciate you staying up uh, late and keeping us company. Sure, thanks for having me. You bet. All right, Amigos, coming right back with your calls and more. Don't go anywhere.
1: This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez.
2: All right, so the phones we go. Let's go to Jeff calling from California on K N C O. Jeff, go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez.
5: Hello, Rich. Hey, love your show. Thank you. I'm out here in California, and I heard that guy the the very beginning of the show,
2: Congressman and he, Garcia, he's trying to blast Trump. Yeah, and just I laugh so much. How is this a bad plan? Right, right. No, that's what I'm phone. thinking. It, it in effect sounds like a campaign ad. No. <laughs> I mean, I
5: feel like I'm the last one legged man on the alligator boat out here in California. Clear thinking person. <laughs> it's like, what is going on?
2: Yeah, I, honestly, I, I, don't, I think that blew up in his face. And I think this is uh, to me, this is the reason Trump got elected. There is a, a handful of people that are in a pos- position of power that think that they know everything and that the way they think is the way everyone else thinks. And Trump was able to surprise those people. Winning in 2016, and I think he's surprising them again right now. Where they're trying to—they've been trying for I don't know—at least a year and a half, maybe even two years—to label all Trump supporters MAGA extremists, right, or extremist Republicans. And I don't think it's working because you, you've got rappers, Meek Mill. You probably don't even uh, know who Meek Mill is, but he's a rapper uh, that that was uh, in jail for a while, and he came out, and and recently he put a, a post on Twitter saying. Uh, People are going to be surprised at who poor black people vote for. And he had a picture of uh, or a video of Vivek Ramaswamy uh, endorsing Donald Trump. And it it just goes to show you that there's a shift, right? People are are tired of what the Democrats have had to offer. And I think they're just in shock that people actually like alligators and moats and electrified fences and you know, shooting people in the leg. Consequently, this is what they do in other countries. (laughs) I'm not endorsing that or saying that that's what we should do. I'm just saying it's not an uncommon practice. And to to try and ridicule uh, Trump or even remove the context to try and make it seem like it's kind of uh, outside of the ordinary um, is a a risk of your own, right? A political risk that Congressman Garcia took because ultimately this was a, a bad move for him jeff in nevada city california on knco thanks for your kind words and thanks for your call i appreciate it my friend and let's see let's go to matt st albans vermont wvmt what do you think we got to do with iran
6: hey rich love your show um i just wanted to make a comment i i think the best thing we could do right now is take out iran's nuclear facility it's the perfect timing We needed an excuse to go in there and take it out. Let's do it right now.
2: I think you're right, Matt. I hope Biden's listening. Joe El Baboso Biden, if you're listening, Matt, in St. Albans, Vermont on WVMT, he's got the right idea. Let's take out their yellow cake uranium facility and call it a day. My dad used to say, mata el perro y se acaba la rabia. You kill the dog and he's no longer a rabbit. All right, folks, we're coming right back. Hour number two is coming up. Matt, thanks for your call. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And welcome to our number two of the program. If you want to join us on the phone lines, feel free, 833-482-5337, 8334-VALDEZ. And uh, Corey Bush, Congressman Corey Bush, Congresswoman Corey Bush, uh, who was uh, famous for saying we need to defund the police and then went and got her own private security is now under investigation by the Department of Justice for allegedly misusing these government funds that she uh, had gotten for security. So uh, we'll get into that um, at the top of the next hour. I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, the parents of a fallen soldier killed in the drone strike are still waiting for a call from President Biden. And the uh, federal court has now found the peaceful pro life protesters guilty of violating what is known as the FACE Act, and they face up to 11 years in prison. Now, of course, that's all on top of what's going on at the border. The border continues to be a very hot-button issue with lots going on. Critics are slamming um, the, the, the drama between uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott and, and Joe Biden, and that continues. And, of course, I want to talk about funding, right, because there's, there's funding, there's a border deal, there's a deal that we we don't uh, have all of the details on, but the Senate deal seems like a pretty bad idea, right? At least that's what I think. And there's a lot of back and forth in the Senate about this. If Republicans are uh, experiencing some disagreement on this, which is good. I think you need healthy debate on this. You've seen the House of Representatives, uh, take three. <laughs> the House of Representatives say that this is dead on arrival when it gets there. So... I think the question becomes, what is in the bill? Um, and I, I want to uh, get into a conversation on that because Congress obviously is not passing the, um, the, the spending bills that they need to do. And we've seen that happen time and again. And now it looks like some members of the Senate, at least, are really eager to get funding for Ukraine and other places. So they're willing to play ball with Democrats to make this happen, Right. And I I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but um, my gut tells me it's a horrible thing, right? (laughs) That's what my gut tells me. This is a very bad thing. I don't think that we need to necessarily uh, play ball with the Democrats in order to, to fund, you know, our commitments externally when we're not really taking care of what's happening here at home. Now, Senator Lankford yesterday was making some comments on how this, This uh, 5,000 person a day limit. And again, this is, um, we talked about this a little bit a while ago, just for the setup here. We've had some days there were, you know, 10, 11, 12,000 border crossings, illegal border crossings at the border. And this is record-breaking. Obama's Department of Homeland Security Secretary, Jay Johnson, had said that if this hit 500 a day, it would be disastrous. And now we're at a point where we're trying to negotiate for 5000 a day. And I, this blows me away. I've got a clip of Lankford that I want to play, and then I'm going to bring in our guest. Listen to this.
8: Yeah, the challenge that Senator Cruz has and a bunch of other folks is they're still waiting to be able to read the bill on this. And this has been our great challenge of being able to fight through the final words to be able to get the bill text out so people can hear it. Right now, there's Internet rumors is all that people are running on. It would be absolutely absurd for me to agree to 5000 people a day. This bill focuses on getting us to zero illegal crossings a day. There's no amnesty. It increases the number of border patrol agents, It increases asylum officers. It increases detention beds so we can quickly detain and then deport individuals. It ends catch and release. It focuses on additional deportation flights out. It changes our asylum process so that people get a fast asylum screening at a higher standard and then get returned back to their home country. This is not about letting 5,000 people in a day. This is the most misunderstood section of this proposal. And let me tell you briefly what it is. Uh, In the last four months, we've had seven days. In four months, we've had seven days uh, that we had less than 5,000 people. This is set up for if you have a rush of people coming at the border, the border closes down, no one gets in. This is not, this is not someone standing at the border with a little clicker saying, I'm going to let one more in, we're at 4,999, and then it has to stop. It is a shutdown of the border, and everyone actually gets turned around. Okay. That's the focus that we have right now, is how do we actually intervene in this administration and turn people around, not let people in?
2: I don't know if I buy that. I'm not getting all of that. Maybe uh, Ryan Walker, executive vice president at Heritage Action for America, can help us understand what's going on with this um, border bill and the supplemental funding uh, for border security, because I-, I can't make sense of it. Ryan Walker, welcome to the program.
9: Thanks for having me on.
2: You bet. So you've heard uh, this clip that we're talking about here. Um, what are your thoughts here on this 5,000-a-day number? And is Senator Lankford calling it right I know Joe Biden's not calling it right when he says that he needs um, someone to give him the authority to shut down the border.
9: Yeah, I think it's, a, it's, it's an interesting clip and it, it's an interesting soundbite. If you notice in the clip, Senator Langford does not deny the fact that in this bill there is statutory language that would allow for 5,000 illegal entrants a day. What he means to say and what we've learned since that original leak is that the language could allow for up to 8,500 a day to come it, into this, it this gets country. Better. <laughs> it does, and, and it's a rolling average over a multi-day period, and it, it, it may shut down the border, but only after nearly 2 million illegal immigrants would enter into the United States every single year.
2: Well, um, listen, I'm not the executive vice president for Heritage Action for America. But I'll tell you, that sounds like a horrible deal.
9: It is. And, and I think that we're genuinely shocked about uh, some of the Senate Republicans' willingness to negotiate away from H.R. 2, which we knew would require Biden to take action at the border. It would uh, put his administration uh, in, a, in a tight uh, narrow window that they could operate in and it would do and go beyond what's being discussed right now in the Senate.
2: So why did we, uh, maybe you can give us some of the political perspective here, did they feel that HR2 is something that they could never get a uh, consensus on and they couldn't get, get it through? Or was this uh, a, yet another Washington negotiation where, you know, people said, well, I got it. I need this and I need that. And you need that. And let's put this forward and see what we get.
9: Yeah, I think it was more of the latter. I think that you have a number of Senate Republicans who are interested in sending $60 billion to Ukraine. That includes economic aid. So it's not just military hardware and weapons and missiles and the things that you would think that they would need to fight a war. It's beyond that. It goes to pensions for government employees. It pays for their emergency services personnel, so their firefighters and police departments. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, we here at home uh, have an open southern border that has allowed 10 million illegal immigrants into the United States since Joe Biden came to power. And so I think there is this horse trading going on amongst elected leaders who are supposed to represent the people. Uh, But for whatever reason, they get to Washington, D.C., and they're distracted by every other interest other than their constituents, at least seemingly. And so I think that they're pursuing this all in the, in, with the intention of passing additional Ukraine aid, an additional $14 billion for Israel, which may be needed, uh, additional uh, funding for the Indo-Pacific, um, and all of this, all of these dollars that are flowing out of the Treasury— Those $100 billion, in fact, uh, would go to conflicts and and areas outside of the United States. And I think the American people are sick of that.
2: I agree. And when you say, you know, interests other than their constituents' interests, um, would you surmise that these are special interests or their own political interests, some combination thereof? Uh, Explain a little more.
9: Yeah, I think I think it's um I, I think people lose sight of of what what they were elected uh to do here in Washington DC and and they're often uh distracted by these uh seemingly metaphysical arguments at times uh mm-hmm. about you know what's going on in the world and 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 how we can have an impact there and and I think they overemphasize the United States Ability to influence some of these things, as we've seen in Ukraine, it's been going on for over a year and a half, and we've had very little progress, if any. Uh, and it looks like this this war, this conflict, will grind on uh, until someone is ready to admit that we need to sit down at the table and have some discussion. And so, I think the American people see that, um, and, and I think that that uh, elected leaders are often distracted here in in, in this city uh, with, with other conversations that they hear, um, that, you know, they're they they are in a bubble and they do leave their, their home districts or States, um, uh, for a a long period of time. And, and so I do think they become disconnected.
2: Without a doubt, that's, um, clearly a, a huge part of what's going on there and why one day, hopefully we can, um, retool whatever we have to retool, whether it's the constitution or anything else to, to get some term limits because I think that's a big, big part of the issue is in helping people remain disconnected, is becoming part of this permanent Washington, D.C. class. Now, along the same lines as this, right, this is specifically border security funding and and everything else you mentioned uh, that's part of it in this new deal. But overall, we're seeing a, a we've seen a huge departure from, the days where we actually used to pass budgets and, and clean spending bills and not deal with continuing resolutions every single time uh, one, another one ran out, they put in another one. I, I don't know if I feel confident that we're going to get to a place where that actually happens again, where we actually pass budgets. But maybe I'm being pessimistic. Ryan Walker, what say you?
9: No, I, I agree with you that the the process is fundamentally broken. Uh, we've entered into this new realm of politics that I think is uh, very dangerous, in fact, and I, I appreciate you bringing up this point. Uh, I think that we're in a a process in Congress where it's expected now, even with new uh, representatives who come in here with very little experience or, or understanding or expectation of how it should be run. Right. Um, and it's it's it continues to run this way. So we go from CR to CR, or even worse, omnibus to omnibus. These deals are negotiated by four or five people, maybe twenty staff members. Uh, that's not representative of the American people, uh, and and for anyone to claim it's otherwise is is ludicrous. And so I, I do I, I have severe concerns, and and furthermore to that point, I think that we're in somewhat of a dangerous territory where. Because of, because of redistricting and, and various lawsuits across the country, uh, the House of Representatives for the next maybe 10 years will be decided by about 25 or 30 seats. And that means a very thin majority for either the Democrats or the Republicans. And it also means that the American people aren't truly represented. Um, and so yeah, I have concerns that because of that dynamic, we're going to continue down this path for for quite some time. And that leadership and a, a, a whole handful of folks, literally a handful of folks, will, will write these pieces of legislation. And the American people have no insight or, or ability uh, to, to understand the complexity of what those members of Congress are voting on. It's so big and, and so uh, immense. It's, it's inexplicable to the American people.
2: So the politicians have insulated themselves from the citizenry and now they've institutionalized their own, um, built in power base where they just continue to wield power, whether it's one side or the other, but it's not really the power that's with the people. It's really the power that's with the politician.
9: It's, it is, uh, and, and it's, it's a hard thing to admit, um, it's a hard thing to to deal with and to confront, but I think it's a reality. Now, I don't want to demonize or or uh, impugn the motives of, of a, a lot of members uh, right. that come to Washington, D.C. You have members of the Freedom Caucus and uh, folks that, that align with those conservative values who are truly fighting for the good cause. And I actually think that Speaker Johnson is doing everything in his power – uh, to fight for, for wins as he sees them. Uh, but it's it's just an untenable situation uh, here in yeah, D.C. It's a
2: hard place to have the fight. Ryan Walker is the executive vice president of Heritage Action for America. We're coming right back to, to wrap up with him. Uh, make sure you check them out at heritageaction.com. Don't go anywhere.
1: This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833 833- Four Valdez. That's 833 482 5337. 833 4 Valdez. That's Valdez with an S.
5: What's been suggested is in this bill is not enough to secure the border. And we have to insist, we have a responsibility, a duty to the American people to insist that the border catastrophe has ended. And just uh, trying to whitewash that or or do something for political purposes that it appears that may be is not going to cut it. And that's a non-starter in the
2: House. And there you have Speaker Johnson saying this is a non-starter, this uh, Senate uh, immigration bill on, uh, funding here for their border deal. And, um, uh, Ryan Walker, executive vice president of heritage action for America. Um, ultimately I guess in a, in a sentence or two, where do you think this ends up? You know, if, if the deal's dead on arrival in the house, what does Biden do?
9: Yeah. I, th- I think ultimately the deal collapses. I think negotiations continue for another week or so. And ultimately it, it becomes politically untenable.
2: And let everybody know how they could uh, keep up to speed with you and everything you're doing at uh, HAFA.
9: Yeah, absolutely. Please visit www.heritageaction.com. We're on all of the social media platforms you can imagine. Uh, we put out content to educate activists so they can be involved in, in the political system.
2: Outstanding well, Ryan Walker, I want to thank you for being with us and staying up late and having some coffee so that you don't fall asleep. I know it's not easy doing late night radio, but we appreciate it.
9: No, absolutely. Thanks for having me on.
2: You bet. All right, folks. Now, your calls are coming up soon. We're going to be talking about in-laws, different things that happen with in-laws. Uh, there's a couple of interesting stories in the news about in-laws. Plus, I got a little clip that I think you're going to enjoy about in-laws. And it's one of those things I've been wanting to talk about for a while, just because I've, I've I was married once and I got along really well with my in-laws and I thought they were wonderful, but you know, there's always people making those mother-in-law jokes and things like that. So I want to get your thought on it. You know, do they love you? Do they treat you like a, like a son, like a daughter? Do they treat you better than the son or daughter? Or do they, you know, treat you like a redheaded stepchild? You know, I'm, I'm curious, curious to know if they support you or if they're trashing you. And, and a couple of, like I said, funny stories on in-laws that I want to get to uh, plus the Corey Bush story I want to get to as well. And I also want to, talk about the history of World War II. As you know, so many people are speculating about World War III, a potential World War III. I think it's only fair we talk about World War II, and we're going to do that straight ahead. So uh, make sure you keep it locked right here with me, Rich Valdez, on America at Night. And check us out online. I'm looking at all of the comments. Uh, I have one... one uh, commenter that's just obsessed with talking about my uh my body art my tattoos so uh, i'll be checking out what's going on at rich valdez with an s don't go anywhere coming right back
1: One of the greatest shows that radio has ever had. America at night
2: with Rich Valdez. All right, so those of you who like history and war movies and stuff like that, you remember the um, HBO series Band of Brothers back in the day, and then there was Band of Brothers and The Pacific, um, and now there's a, a new one on Apple TV called Masters of the Air. It's a drama from the same producers and. It's, uh, it's about World War II. And it chronicles you know, some of the most interesting um, stories about the air part of the war. And one of the most recognized uh, writers on World War II is Adam Makos. And he's got a book called World War II. I'm sorry, uh, Makos. That's what I said. I thought that's what I said. And he's got a, a book that chronicles this stuff. And while it wasn't the actual source material, it probably could have been. And what's interesting is the, the part of the story that, that I think that I'm interested in it is this, this story about what goes on in the air, uh, in particular about you know the, the German pilot and the American pilot, part of what I was reading in, uh, in my show prep materials. <clears throat> and I really want to get into it. Now, the book is called A Higher Call, and... It's uh, one of the best-known books about World War II bombers in Europe. And, again, Adam Makos is the author, and he's with us now. Adam Makos, welcome. Hey, Rich. Good to be with you. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Uh, love a good uh, walk through history. And let's talk a little bit about, uh, for those that saw the the, the series on Apple TV, um, was what they saw in Masters of the Air an accurate depiction of what really went really went down?
10: I, I give it really high marks. The producers went to a lot of trouble. They, they actually recreated B-17s. So they made three of them. Uh, they're non-flyable, but uh, they they recreated the bomber base at Thorpe Abbott's. It's, of course, the story of the 100th Bomb Group, known as the Bloody 100th. And uh, the unit was known for having some really colorful characters. And so some people may look at these uh, the lead characters um, Buck Clevin and uh, John Egan, who are who are the the main movie stars in this thing, and they may think, oh wow, you know they're they're a little Hollywood, but in real life, these guys were charismatic, they were flashy, and they were young, and and I think all those things go together because these guys were going up to 25,000 feet and fighting for their lives, a couple times a week, and so you had to kind of psych yourself up, and you had to be larger than life to think you were going to survive this.
2: Now, Adam, the, the the big part of this for me is, you know, you have to conduct research to put these books together, but your research goes a little bit beyond just looking at historical references. Uh, you've actually flown in some of these planes, haven't you?
10: Yeah, I got I got the chance to fly in a B-17 back before September 11th. After that, all the rules changed. You know, you couldn't just have civilians sitting in the left seat of a B-17. And, and what a magnificent machine, you know, four engines. And, and I remember fondly when you try to make a turn in that, it's not like turning your car or your SUV. You mm-hmm. turn that yoke, and then that big machine starts to slowly lower one wing and raise the other. And, and you, you're kind of flying a bus through the sky. But man, it, when you think that guys were going up and doing that at age 19, 20, 21, and they weren't just doing it like I was over the, the rolling hills of Pennsylvania, they were, they were flying over the European continent in temperatures that were sometimes 20 degrees below zero. And, and they're up there waiting for German fighters to swarm them and for these 88 millimeter flak guns to be shooting at them from the ground. I mean, just the idea of flying bombers in formation, forget the enemy, just flying them across Germany in 1943 would be dangerous by itself. Then you throw in the Luftwaffe. And my respect for these guys is just sky high.
2: Yeah, I I can only imagine. Folks, we're on with Adam Makos. The Los Angeles Times says that he's uh, in the top ranks of military writers. He's our guest. He's also the author of A Higher Call one of the best-known books about World War II bombers. And uh, we're coming right back. And when we do, we're going to find out a little bit about what inspired his uh, interest in World War II. So don't go anywhere. Keep it locked right here.
1: This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4VALDEZ. That's 833 482 Five three three seven eight three three four Valdes. That's Valdes with an S. This is America at night. With Rich Valdez. Call now. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S.
2: All right, America, welcome back. And we're continuing our discussion on World War II history. And uh, we're talking about... Hollywood versus history uh, as it pertained to the, the television program on Apple TV, Masters of the Air. And it led us to a part of the conversation where I was curious to know how our guest, Adam Makos, uh, New York Times bestselling author of A Higher Call, which is one of the best known books about World War II bombers, um, how he got his interest in World War II to begin with. Adam Makos, welcome back, sir. Hey, thanks, Rich. You bet. So where did this um, fondness and interest in World War Two? I think we're all interested in hearing about it and learning about it. And everybody, anybody who's ever been in the presence of a World War Two veteran uh, and has heard a a very rare story from them, I'm sure was enamored by it. Uh, But not everybody's a World War Two historian like you are. How did that come about?
10: Well, you nailed it. Anybody who's been in the presence of these guys knows there's something special about them. And for me, I was growing up with my around my grandfathers. One was a Marine at the end of World War II, and one was a radio operator on these B-17s. And so I would go to air shows and museums with them, and just their era just spoke to me. Uh, I was a young uh, journalism student right out of college. And uh, I was, uh, I just want, you know what it was, Rich? It was, Mm. it's one thing to know and appreciate the sacrifices and the stories and to be enamored with it. But, but for me, it was, I wanted other people to care. I wanted to try to do my part just to spread the word of what happened way back then. And so I began, you know, writing uh, these stories for any magazine I could. And I found this one incredible story along the way. It was about this day in December 1943 when an American bomber was badly shot up and limping home over Germany, just trying to get out over the sea and get back to England. And a German fighter pilot saw this plane fly over his base, took off, chased this plane down, and he was supposed to shoot it down. His name was Franz Stiegler, and he was a German ace. He was one victory away from winning the Knight's Cross. And instead, when he saw this badly damaged plane that was defenseless, he said, I can't shoot this plane down. That would be murder. And he ended up escorting this bomber out of Germany. He saluted the American pilot and he flew away. Now, the American Hmm. pilot, Charlie Brown, never forgot that moment. And later he searched the world for the German who saved his life. And don't you know, he found Franz. Wow. And so... When I called Charlie Brown up, it was uh, 2003, and I said, Mr. Brown, I would love to go deeper into your story. I want to write a book about this. I want to I want to get to know everything about it. He said, Adam, you're doing it all wrong. He said, you got to understand, I'm not the hero in this story. The German is. So if you want to do this right, you've got to go talk to Franz Stiegler. He's still alive. He's in poor health, but he's alive out in Vancouver, Canada. And so don't you know, I got on a plane next week. I was out there in Vancouver meeting the first German pilot I had ever met and trying to understand that side of the war as well as Charlie's. Wow.
2: What did you glean from that?
10: I gleaned from that that guys like Franz Stiegler, they were were really born in the wrong place at the wrong time. You know, to be a German, to come of age during the era of Hitler... Really what choice did you have? You know it was you say no you don't sur- show up for your draft appointment well you're in a concentration camp. You you try to avoid it your parents are in a concentration camp and so in his case he ended up flying for the Luftwaffe. He was a fighter pilot and he was motivated at first by revenge because his brother had been a pilot too and his brother had gone to war in the Battle of Britain and his brother was killed. So Franz said, OK, I'm going to be a fighter pilot. I'm going to get vengeance for the brother they took from me. And along the way, he came to learn that there was this code of chivalry from fighter pilots that it kind of existed as a holdover from World War I when they saw themselves as knights. And so Franz had a good squadron leader named Gustav Rodel, who kind of slapped some sense into him and said, you fight with honor, not just for your enemy, You fight with honor so that someday if you survive this, you can still look yourself in the mirror. And that lesson came back around on December 20th when he had Charlie Brown in his gun sight.
2: Wow. Really interesting perspective, right? Because one would think, you know, uh, we wouldn't look really sympathetically uh, uh, on a German uh, fighter pilot. Uh, Yet he, he showed this sympathy, which I'm sure Hitler and the rest of those guys thought was treasonous, right? For, for showing such mercy. Um, what were the, the parameters of him seeing this plane, uh, kind of dysfunctional? Was it that it it didn't have onboard guns or the guns weren't functioning? It didn't have any bombs left to drop. What was the, uh, the condition of Charlie Brown's, uh, plane that, that they took mercy on him?
10: Charlie's plane had been in a big air battle, Uh, at high altitude that day. It was hit by flak on its way to the target at Bremen. And um, the flak shells, one went through the wing, the other knocked out an engine. And then he had another engine running rough. And he basically fell from formation. And so that was the one place you didn't want to be in a bomber crew. You didn't want to be the straggler because there is protection in formation. Each plane, you know, you're talking eight caliber machine guns. You know, and then multiply that by the number of aircraft. Charlie fell out of formation that day. The other guys went on without him, and he was swarmed by German fighters. And so that plane was riddled with bullets from nose to tail, and the way he escaped it was actually inadvertent. He was being chased by these German fighters around the sky, and he's maneuvering that plane that I said was kind of like a bus, and he lost control, and he spun it out of the sky at 18,000 feet. And he barely recovered at 2000 feet. And then he flew just in the direction of the sea. And he made one more mistake that day. And that was, he flew over the airfield of Franz Stiegler. Didn't see Mm -hmm. it there on the ground. And Stiegler looked up, got in his plane and went to chase down this bomber because Franz had already shot down one American bomber that day. And this was a chance for the second.
2: Right. To get his, uh, whatever commendation. And, and he gave that up, um, in an act of mercy. Really fascinating story. Um, Folks, we are on with Adam Makos. He's the author of a higher call. And uh, we're going to continue our discussion on his book and his experiences. Uh, Really, really interesting stuff. And I want to learn more about the B 17s. When we come back, don't go anywhere.
1: This is America at night with rich Valdez. Call now eight three three. For Valdez, that's eight three three four eight two five three three seven eight three three. For valdez. That's Valdez with an S America at night. With Rich Valdez. Call now. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S.
2: All right, America, welcome back. We continue our discussion uh, with Adam Makos, the author of the book, A Higher Call. Uh, It's about World War II bombers in Europe, and uh, we heard some interesting stories thus far, and I want to learn a little bit more about the B-17s. I know that you mentioned that your grandfather was a radio operator on a B-17 during World War II, and you yourself flew in a B-17, giving you this uh, perspective I think that most of us don't have, and really, I think putting them... Uh, a dimension to your research that most historians don't always get a chance to, to, to include in, you know, in their writing is actually having been in a B-17. Tell us more about these, these buses, as you mentioned.
10: Well, Rich, the uh, B-17, if there was an official plane of the United States of America, that really should be it. I mean, it's iconic when you hear the uh, four, Uh, right cyclone engines spinning up. It's just, it it courses through your veins. It's, there's something just like the Ford Mustang. I mean, it's, it's an American machine and it it exemplified the American way of war in World War II. You know, the British had taken such heavy losses in their bombing campaigns that they went at night. And so their four engine Lancaster bombers are dropping bombs from 20,000 feet and it was terribly inaccurate, and it was really useful for, I want to say, almost terror tactics. It was the idea that you just, you drop the bombs on a city, you catch the city on fire, and maybe you achieve some military goals. Whereas the Americans said, well, we're going to try to spare civilian casualties at times, and we're going to use this pinpoint accuracy that you only get during daylight. And so we had the right plane for it. We had the bomb site that could do it, a very special Norden bomb site. They still say you have to imagine dropping a bomb onto a target is like riding a bicycle past a teacup and trying to drop a grain of rice in the wow. teacup. It looks like it's point and click, but really there's some serious calculations involved, everything from the wind and the Germans would put up smoke screens. It was a challenging way to go, but it was a way to win the war and our air crews knew they were going to have to take heavier losses and they were going to have to just, you know, they were going to have to get destroyed to bring this war to an end. And in the end, the United States uh, eighth air force lost more men than the Marine Corps. They lost 40,000 men doing these kind of missions, but they also brought the German war machine to its knees. A lot of their targets were, Airplane factories, like the Falk Wolf factory in Bremen and the Messerschmitt factory in Regensburg. And that's why when D-Day rolled around, where were the German aircraft? The beaches were completely free of, of enemy aircraft. You know, one or two made passes down the beaches. But by D-Day, by June 6th, the Luftwaffe had been all but wiped out. But it came at a great cost.
2: Wow. Uh, this is just remarkable. I want to remind everybody uh, to get a copy of your book, A Higher Call, an incredible true story of combat and chivalry in the war-torn skies of World War II uh, by Adam Makos and uh, Larry Alexander. And I want to always encourage you to get two, right? Get two copies of the book, one for yourself, <laughs> one to give away as a gift. And, again, this the Flying Fortress, as it's known, Uh, quite a remarkable machine, Adam Makos. And uh, the minute that we have remaining, let everybody know how they can um, follow the work that you're
0: doing.
10: Well, Rich, I I really appreciate what you're saying and doing. And um, this is just a great, one of those one in a million stories of two enemies who became fishing buddies. And whenever I tell people what they think, Oh, you made that up. And then I say, no, this is a true story. I found these guys after they found each other And I was just in the right place. And I was a lucky person who got to tell this story. But I like to think it represents all the guys who served. I think Masters of the Air represents all the guys who flew. And so I would say you will not regret picking up a higher call. It's not that I'm a great writer. It's that it's simply the best story of World War II.
2: Outstanding. Now, Adam, if people want to follow you on social media or visit your website, where do they go?
10: Yeah, I've got a, uh, a website, adammakos.com. I'm on Facebook and Instagram, too. And uh, and the book is sold at booksellers everywhere. So if you want an autographed version, valorstudios.com.
2: Outstanding. Well, Adam, I appreciate it. You are a, a gentleman, a scholar, and a patriot, and I thank you for being here tonight.
10: Hey, thanks for having me, Rich. Let's do
2: it again someday. You bet. we Will do. All right, folks, Open Phone America is coming up. We're going to talk about in-laws and a couple other things, but I really want to get your thoughts on in-laws. If you've never called the show before, make sure you call in now, 833-4-VALDEZ. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Your liberty-loving Latino amigo, happy to be here with you on this Tuesday night edition of the program, hour number three, also known as Open Phone America. And we're taking your calls on all the topics we've discussed tonight, World War II, the border, Trump, everything else. And I also want to add a new topic, which is in-laws. And I got a couple of different angles on the in-laws topic I'm curious to see what people have to say. If you've never called the show before, I want you to call tonight, 866-505-4626. That's our legacy line, 866-50-JIMBO. Big shout out to Jimbo RIP. And if um, you're a regular, then you know the number, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And uh, I want to get into a few things tonight. And I'm probably going to start it off with a clip, right? a clip of audio, uh, because I was... um, Looking at at these uh, interesting stories that I saw on in-laws, and um, our crack team in the control room came across this clip of audio from uh, comedian Jim Gaffigan on late-night television a, a couple of years ago, and he shares a very interesting story uh, about his in-laws. Listen to this: My my wife's parents are are
8: special people. Their names are Louise and Dominic. I call them Louise and Dom. But my wife's
9: siblings have also gotten married, and some of their spouses call Louise and Dom
8: mom and dad because they're weirdos.
9: <laughs> you know, it's like, I, like, do you call your in-laws mom and dad? No. Because it's like, I understand sometimes people marry into a family and you become so close to their spouse's parents that they want to call them mom and dad, but don't. <laughs> <laughs> It's,
8: it's weird and confusing
9: for the rest of us. They're like, wait, that's his mom? He married his sister?
3: You know, it's like, what state is he from? You know? yeah,
2: that's funny. And um, I, I think it's uh, an interesting thing as well. I, I was very formal, uh, like ma'am and sir all the time. That was how, how I did it. But I'm curious to know how you guys refer to your in-laws. And moreover, I, I want to get into the nuts and bolts of it, right? Do your in-laws like you? Do they support you? Do they um, trash you when you're not looking? Or are you the favorite? Do they like you more than they like their own child? Um, I really want to hear from you on this, and, of course, all the other topics as well. And I want to share this one with you. There's a story in Business Insider. It says six signs that your in-laws are meddling in your relationship, even if you get along. (laughs) Now, even if you get along with your in-laws or your spouse's parents, They can impact your partnership. A therapist shared a couple of signs that an in-law might have too much say in your relationship. In-laws who openly gossip and make non-emergencies feel urgent can totally influence your marriage. So whether you're thinking of marrying your significant other or in a long-term relationship or are married, there's a lot to consider besides the relationship between the two of you, right? It's your relationship with their parents. Now, um, in this article, a uh, licensed marriage and family therapist practicing in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, told a business insider. Her name is April Eldmire. that she's seen many couples start off loving their in-laws or their significant other's parents. But then over time, things happen along the way and they start to have some differences and disagreements and some struggles And she said, you can really form a wonderful relationship, but then there can be some things that you may do that seep into the relationship or cross a boundary that you totally weren't expecting. So I'm wondering if you have any uh, stories that you could share on that. Uh, Let's see, where do we go here? We got a few people on the line, Oregon, Connecticut, Alabama, Idaho. Uh, I want to go to... I want to go to... Uh, Jason is calling from Dothan, Alabama, W-D-B-T. Jason, uh, do you call your in-laws mom and dad? Do you have in-laws? I used to.
7: What'd you call them? Well, they they, they
2: still like me, but she don't. (laughs) Right, yeah, I know how that goes. Uh, I'm divorced myself. And did did they like you more than they liked her, or you know, did they just put up with you because you know you were with her? Oh yeah,
7: they 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 just couldn't tolerate her, and um, she <laughs> uh, it's hard to describe. And, and these are her own parents' niceties for that. Oh yeah, they want to wow. adopt me, <laughs> right? they They try to. It. They try to yeah, that's like. Well, I don't think this is gonna work.
2: On we gonna part ways? Yeah, I had a similar experience myself. I, they they loved me, and uh, I just thought that was always so interesting. And and uh, and it was vice versa though. My mom absolutely would have traded me in for my ex wife for sure. It was like the daughter that she already had, but an extra daughter that she always wanted. I guess. Uh, anyway, let's talk about um, your thoughts on the show tonight. Go ahead, Jason.
7: Well, it, it has been so far i loved it and you really piqued my interest when you brought your last guest on you you hit hmm. me in the gut anything having to do with aviation you had me at aviation yeah
2: well it's, it's a because, fascinating topic right
7: well i was born and raised in aviation
2: oh cool you ever been on a b-17
7: I've been on one, haven't flown on one, but le- like I was telling the screen caller, where I live now, uh, as I'd say, it's like three quarters of a mile down the road. Uh, it used to be an airport, but they shut it down and they turned it into an apartment complex. Hmm. But when I was a little kid, you know what they had lined up on the end of the runway? What's that? A B 17G. A G model B 17.
2: Wow. I didn't even know what that is. It,
7: oh, what it is was the last major production run of the B 17 that Boeing put out. That's the one that had the chin turn with the Twin 50s up under the Bombardiers where mm. you got the Norton bomb scope and all that. Well, cool. they what they used that aircraft for back in the 70s was a spray for fire ants.
2: Oh, wow. So they didn't drop and, bombs. They were, they were using it for pesticide.
7: Oh, yeah. And not only that, but uh, what the deal was, and we always wondered what happened to that aircraft, and a couple from Wisconsin bought that aircraft. And last, last I heard, it was in Wisconsin, up and around
2: Oshkosh. Wow, that's fascinating. It's amazing how, you know, these things were built for one thing and then, you know, get used for another. Especially with the way uh, our guest was describing them as, you know, buses in the sky and not being easy to, to maneuver and being really heavy. Um, really, really interesting stuff. Jason, I want to thank you for, for chiming in and for your kind words. I appreciate it. Uh, big shout out to everybody in Dothan on WDBT. Shout out to Alabama. Let's continue. Uh, let's go to Jim. Danbury Connecticut WLAD Jim you got an in-law story for me? New year. Yeah, I've been more of a listener
10: these days, but I got a quick question for you here. Is that uh, I, listen,
2: I I didn't hear what you said. Do you have an in-law story for us?
10: No, it's, it's about the uh, it's about Donald Trump.
2: Okay, go right ahead.
10: I'm just curious that all the right-wing radio shows I listen to they all talk about the border. The border's an issue. I one second.
2: Oh yeah, take your time, Jim. Let's go to Brad. Let's go to Brad. Uh, in uh, where is Brad? Just put him on, I'll figure it out. Bowling Green, Kentucky.
4: Hey Rich. Uh, my father was a, a World War II bomber pilot, but oh, he was wow. fighting in the eight. Well that's awesome. He was fighting
2: thank, thank God for his service.
4: Uh, yeah, he, he lived through it. Thank God. And, uh, but he used to fly over enemy territory and everything. And there was headhunters. And if you went down, yeah, there's a good chance you was going to be soup. And <laughs> they would, he, he, yeah, for real, they would fly his bomber, you know, the, the group on the way back from a bombing run, they'd fly at low level over the ocean and make all these headhunters jump into the shark infested waters. And, uh, they, they was really, you know, but he wouldn't talk about it much, except uh, that he, you know, uh, yeah. it, it was well, war.
2: Oftentimes, right, I find that these the greatest generation was always very silent about um, what they went through, and it was rare to get a story. I did an interview, uh, probably five or six, maybe I don't know, it was 2018, uh, with, uh, with a World War II vet. He was a bombardier, and he, uh, fascinating, nice, nice man, and he was uh, from Coney Island, Brooklyn. And we were, um, you know, we met at a at an event where he was being honored, and for his service. And I asked him, "Would you come on my show?" And he said he would. So we did a, a phone interview. And what a remarkable guy! And you know, it was, you know, he was in his nineties, and it, it was just so interesting. Like you know, I asked certain questions, and even in his nineties, he would pause and take deep breaths. And at one point, he started sobbing as he was telling the story. And It was amazing to see you know how. How those emotions you know hadn't gone away in decades after you know th- these actions had taken place so uh, yeah I totally get that Brad, as you were saying
4: watch uh, what go right ahead. Oh uh, we would watch pictures of planes coming in and that were on fire you know uh, you know from World War II stuff and and the people jump on them and pulling the pilots out. And I said, "My God!" I said, "These guys are crazy." And he said, "My dad." He looked at me. He said, "No, you just thank God that they're there because they're pulling your ass out of that damn plane that's on fire." And huh. it, was, uh, it was crazy. And I had a crazy. I've got a well. She's dead now. She passed. A crazy mother-in-law. Oh, tell uh, us about this mother-in-law. Well, uh, she well, she used to drive a stock car in the in the the eight. What is that? The eight c- crazy. What is that not? It would go around in an eight pattern, I can't think of the name of it, oh right yeah,
2: yeah, one of those races
4: yeah, yeah, it was a dirt track, but it was in eight, and you'd crash in at each other and everything and <laughs> uh she she was she was nuts, and you know i'm we got married, uh I knew her about thirty years, and uh, she loved us i I loved her to death, and she loved me, and uh she was just a really strong woman she she fell in her bedroom and broke her neck. And it was the vertebrae that makes you breathe. And she found out she was going to have to be on support the rest of her life. She said, well, just pull the damn plug. And her daughter got in bed with her and she just slowly died. Uh, She's Uh, really something.
2: Wow. Sounds like a real pistol. God bless her. Brad, thank you for the call. Big shout out to everybody on uh, WKCT. Sounds like your dad was a hero and your mother-in-law was as well. And uh, let's see. Let's continue. I want to keep... Uh, All right. They're telling me I should take a break. So we'll take a break here. We'll come right back to your calls.
1: This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833 4Valdez. That's 833 482 5337. 833 4Valdez. That's Valdez with an S. rich valdez call now 833-4 valdez that's 833-482-5337 833-4 valdez that's valdez with an s
2: all right i hear that jim has called us back he put us on hold before he was very busy probably getting a call from the president jim and danbury wlad go right ahead
10: Rich, how are you doing? I'll be very brief. Listen, we definitely need to do something about the border. There is no question about that. But on right-wing radio, that's all I hear is the border, the border, the border. There's other news, like the amount of trouble that Donald Trump's in.
7: And if Jim Bohannon was here, he'd say, when is that guy going to learn to shut his yap?
2: Yeah. Well, now we have you to say that. So thank you for that, Jim. Uh, I did a whole um, segment on the E.G. Carroll, E. Jean Carroll, $83 million verdict and whatnot. But the the reality is, in, in my opinion, that the trouble that Donald Trump is in is not really trouble. It, it's kind of like fake hurdles that they're throwing at him to slow him down that I think are ultimately always overturned on appeal. Like, for example, our first guest, Hans von Spakovsky, uh, that we talked about earlier today, 10 o'clock hour, he um, he, he reminded me of when there was all this criticism of Trump for something called the travel ban. And that was something they said, oh, you can't do that. You can't shut down the border and and tell people that they can't come here and blah, blah, blah. And it's racist and xenophobic. And it turns out they sued him and it went to court. And the court said, no, no, you can actually do that, right? And that this is Biden today saying the same stuff, that he doesn't have the power, he doesn't have the authority. But yet um, it, that's an ex- another example of how they made Trump look like a bad guy, but he was actually doing what was well within his rights as president to do. And that's what Biden needs to be doing. So I think, you know, it, when it comes to Trump, we need to really look at, at when they say things about him, how accurate are they, how true are they? And do they, are they saying it just because they're political enemies of his, or are they saying it because he's actually doing something that's of detriment to we the people? More often than not, I haven't seen Trump do anything. That really hurts the republic, per se. You know, they say he caused an insurrection. Uh, I say he's exposed so much of the wrongdoings that are going on in Washington. Nancy Pelosi turned down his uh, offer of 10,000 National Guard troops as president. He has to approve them. And as the head of the uh, Capitol complex, as speaker, she has to request them with the, um, with the mayor, of, uh, who is the de facto um, governor, if you will, serves in the role of governor when it comes to the National Guard in Washington, D.C. But both of them didn't request the National Guard until uh, the next day or at least late, 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 way later in the day, hours later is when they started the conversations about it. And we know that because we've had Cash Patel on the program, who was the chief of staff at the Pentagon during the um, January 6th um, debacle, as well as um, I forget his name now, uh, but the um, secretary of defense at the time. So, I think these are the things that we have to look at. And I don't think that this is really right wing radio, but be that as it may, I think that's the whole point here is that we're offering a conservative alternative to the media narrative that you hear on CNN or MSCBC or the rest of those stations that are always trying to give you a different story. The story that, you know, Trump is bad. He's an enemy of democracy. Everything is horrible. And I don't know if Harvard Harris poll means much to you. It doesn't really mean much to me, but I know that it's a it's a poll. It's out there and it has some sort of reputation. And they they've been reporting the uh, inflation issue as the top issue, Jim. And what ends up happening is that inflation's no longer the number one issue. It's the border. People are very 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 concerned about what's happening at the border because people aren't feeling safe anymore. So. You know, I will criticize Trump when I think he needs criticism. But honestly, I agree with him on most of these issues. I don't think that there's much to criticize. We can criticize style, right? We can criticize um, the way he does what he does. That's fine. If you want to say, you know, I don't like the way he, he speaks. I don't like the way he carries himself. But when it comes down to the actual decisions he makes as president, uh, I, think, I think he's done an incredibly um, good job, a very fair job. At least that's my thought, Jim. Big shout out to Danbury, Connecticut, WLAD. Jim, thanks for your call. Folks, we come back to your calls and more straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. I'm Rich Valdez.
1: 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with
2: an S. So we're talking about mothers-in-law and fathers-in-law and all sorts of uh, in-laws. And uh, I got another couple of articles I want to share about that, plus everything else we're talking about that's going on in America at night. And I wanted to um, re, uh, rehash a clip of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis uh, telling us a humorous story about a certain in-law that fled California for Florida. Listen to this.
6: So I was talking to a fella who had made the move from California uh, to Florida, and he was telling me that Florida is much better governed, uh, safer, better budget, uh, lower taxes, all this stuff. And he's really happy with the quality of life. And then he paused and he said, you know, by the way, I'm Gavin Newsom's father-in-law, so we do count— Gavin's in-laws as some of the people that have fled California um, and come to the
11: state of Florida. <laughs> How
2: about that? Right? So even uh, even Gavin Newsom's in-laws are uh, big on DeSantis in Florida. <laughs> Who wouldn't be, right? Who doesn't love some good palm trees? And uh, I mean, outside of the Caribbean, you know, is a pretty good beach. And uh, anyway, I thought that was pretty funny. And uh, I want to continue with your calls. Uh, but let's go to... Bill, Rehoboth, Delaware, WXDE. Go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez.
11: Hi, Rich. Good to talk to you again. Likewise. That guest you had earlier was awesome. I heard that story about Charlie Brown not too
6: long ago. Oh, nice. He might have been from on his book or something somewhere else. Anyway, I uh, want to tell you a little story about mother-in-laws and, you know,
11: in-laws and things. Sure. You know, my daughter came home from a date one night and, Said that Richard had. Uh, she wasn't in a very good mood. She looked kind of upset, and you know, said her mother asked
6: her what was going on. She said, "Well, Richard uh, asked me to marry him." She said, "Well, that's
11: great. Why are you upset?" She said, "Well, Mom," he said, "he's an atheist and he doesn't believe in hell." She said, "Look, you marry him, and between you and me, we'll prove he's wrong." <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was a great joke. <laughs> Bill, you should have a, a side hustle in stand-up comedy. That was a really good joke. I love that. Uh, I, I don't know where you, where, if that was real, if that was uh, actually how it went down or where you got it. But uh, excellent joke, Bill. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. Oh, that was funny. Uh, we will prove him wrong. We'll show them that there is a hell. I love it. Uh, let us continue. Uh let's see. Where do we go? We've got uh, all over the place. Uh let's go to Joe. Joe's in Salem, Arkansas. K S A R. Joe, go right ahead. Hey
5: Rich, you don't have to answer this, but I was curious as inquiring minds are. Uh you mentioned divorce once. Um uh who was a petitioner and what were the complaints? And then I'll have another comment.
2: Ah, well th- this is a simple one. Uh, my my ex-wife got tired of my, what we now know is ADHD, but came across as dismissiveness and um, generally distracted and just, you know, you don't pay attention, you don't do this. I later found out why uh, those things were happening, but that was generally it. She just felt like, uh, like you know, she couldn't connect, and in reality, she couldn't. You know, ADHD is a pretty, it's, it's a lot more than just being a little hyper as a as a kid in a classroom. As an adult, it really... Um, I mean, you could probably even hear it as I do the radio show, you know, which is why I love the segments. You know, I can, I can talk about something for a few minutes and then boom commercial <laughs> and uh, we can switch to the next topic if we have to. And uh, that's very comforting and I can get up and walk around and during the commercial break and stretch and do all those great things. But I didn't always have a job like that. And um, you know, that causes stress plus my kids were little and you know, we were, we had a home and all that stuff. So, you know, ultimately I think that was probably a very large part of it and and uh, she was the petitioner. And, you know, later we, we figured out. And today we get along really, really well. And we're very proud of the family that we made. And, uh, and everybody's happy and healthy, thank God. And, and that's kind of the answer to that one, Joe. What else you got?
5: So kind of a short attention span, you're saying. It was one of her complaints, huh?
2: Yeah. Well, and, I mean, it, it, that stuff rears its head in many ways, right? It's like, hey, uh, bring home some milk when you're on your way home. And again, the way that stuff works is I go, oh, I got to get milk. Let me go to the 7-Eleven. But instead, my car magically drives to, I don't know, TJ Maxx, and I buy a new tie. I come home with the tie, and she's like, where's the milk? And I'm like, oh, shoot, I had to get milk. But I really, you know, I wanted to get a tie. I don't do, and it wasn't on purpose. It really was just one of those things where I end up at, in the parking lot of this place. And it, you, you kind of feel like your car just drives to certain places. And you, it's all about routine. So, um, yeah, you you do that a few hundred times, and anybody's going to be mad at you.
5: Yeah, I hear you there. Uh, Before I moved to Arkansas, across the border, in Missouri, we had a town town called West Plains, Missouri, there. And uh, the women watched the, um, the, the notices for divorce, and they wanted to know who the petitioners was. Mostly women, 70%. I watched it for a long time myself. Just yeah. to get a statistic. And 70% of the ladies were unhappy with the men. And, boy, I tell you, I'm kind of glad I'm down here where there aren't too, too many people because uh, they, they, I worked all over town. Uh, my business took me all over town. And they, uh, they hit you up for coffee or dinner or whatever because they watch them notices. Hmm.
2: So it's, a way to, it's like a dating app. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, you're right. Um, and we've had several guests on this program that indicate that women are uh, usually the, the, the one that files for divorce. Most men don't wake up and say, you know what, I don't want to be married anymore. It's just not a thing for men. Uh, marriage is a very, very comfortable situation for most men. Uh, you know, even if they complain or whatever, it, it's usually very tolerable. Um, it, it's women that are looking for something that men uh, don't always tap into, which I, I know now, I don't, doesn't mean I know how to do it, Right. I I don't think I could succeed at marriage right now either. But I do think that men, um, at least me, I'll speak for myself, there is a a degree of gentleness and and foresight that one needs when approaching a woman that comes to you with a with a concern or a, a problem, let's say. Right. So if your wife comes and she says, oh, my gosh, you'll never guess what happened at work. And you say, oh, what happened? And they go on to tell you about this problem that ensued at work. My brain is hardwired to tell her, oh, here's what you got to do. You got to do this, 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 and this. Make sure you do this. And boom, problem solved. And that's literally not what they're looking for, right? Which is where you get the the, the butt of all these jokes about, you know, with women and whatever. But the reality is they're not. Uh, because there is a, a a need for validation in, in for both parties. But in, in a situation like that where... You know, I've read that they need to hear something like, wow, well, that would be tough for anybody to go through. And I totally know that you know what your options are, and you're going to make a great choice because I trust your judgment. If I can help, you let me know. Now, that is a rehearsed statement that I've used to try and survive when communicating with women. However, it's not a natural one for me. I still have a knee-jerk reaction to a woman telling me, oh my gosh, I have a problem with X, Y, and Z, or this person said this, or did this, and I give them what I feel is the best advice. Um, It's not good. If I use my prepared response, it always goes over well, but it's not natural for me yet. I have to continue to practice this, and one day when I graduate, I will be uh, very enlightened, right? That's when I can become Fraser Crane, maybe finally on the radio. But I, th- I think that there's a, a degree of 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 communicating with women that men have to understand. And and I say men because I don't think women are going to change the way they communicate to communicate with men uh, because I think it's men that cater to women in my my understanding, right? It's me that opens the door for a woman. It's me that pulls out a chair for a woman. And it's me that's got to... Uh, figure out how to speak to a woman, to guide and lead the conversation. And I've got to make sure I have the best tricks up my sleeve, you know, so to speak, uh, in order to to get the best response, right, or to really get to the crux of it. Ultimately, I think they want to be heard, they want to feel acknowledged, and they want to feel validated and special. They don't necessarily want you to solve their problem because they tend to take that as, um, I don't need you solving my problems. I just need to know that you got my back. And, and that's a lesson I've learned. I, I just haven't put into practice yet. Uh, anyway, Joe in Salem, Arkansas, thanks for the call. I appreciate the interesting questions. And we're going to get back to your calls and more straight ahead.
1: This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez.
2: All right, we do round one of the speed round right now, and let's go to Dave. He's calling in from KASI. He's on the road near Des Moines, Iowa. Dave, I understand your dad is an American hero. He served in World War II. What was that uh, experience like?
10: Well, his first experience
11: going over there, he uh, stormed Utah Beach with his crew. And uh, the picture that one of the pictures he brought back was an old black and white. My dad was five foot seven. His two buddies were six foot two. And he was the only one that came back was an old man. Hmm. And he ended up with five bronze stars. And I wouldn't doubt if he wasn't in the B-17 like you guys were talking about earlier. And, um, you know, me and him were never really all that tight. But I got to be proud of, you know, the best generation ever. And Biden just makes me so sick to my stomach that he's trying to destroy all of this.
2: Oh, you're right, Dave. Listen, first of all, I want to thank your dad, uh, you know, and and his legacy uh, for his service to the country. Uh, He's a hero. And uh, and I thank you for your comments as well, because I agree with you. I think Biden's been uh, detrimental to America in many ways. And some people still would rather focus on, you know, whatever it was, the latest thing that Trump said or they accused him of rather than focusing on how bad things are under Biden as opposed to the way they were under Trump. And, and people try to make me out to be the bad guy, saying that, you know, I somehow idolized Trump. I don't idolize Trump. I just, life was better then. Why not do that again? It makes a lot of sense, right? Every, everything was, most things were better. I can't think of something that was worse. I mean, maybe, um, yeah, no, I can't think of anything that was worse, that, that's better right now than 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 when Trump was around. I just can't think of it. So I think you're spot on, Dave. I appreciate it. Um Much success on your road trip, and a big shout-out to everybody in the KASI area near Des Moines, Iowa. Thank you, Dave, for the call. Uh, Let us continue. Let's go to Jim calling from Chicago area, WGN country. Jim, go right ahead.
5: Hey, Rich. Fantastic. Uh, Okay. So on opening day, Americana baseball, we have Joe Biden in one stadium and we have Donald Trump in another stadium. And each has to sing the national anthem. And I think that's when we can figure out who's cognitive ready for the uh, presidency.
2: <laughs> I think that's a great idea. You know what? Um, I also think that one of the people we have to test is, Que Harris, right? Kamala Harris, the vice president of the United States. I think she she sometimes, I think, would do worse than either of those guys because of her lack of experience and how badly she really does. I mean, she does a bad job at a lot of things. I'm I'm oftentimes really taken aback. I'm like, man, there's a relatively young woman who's an attorney who's literally vice president. She was a United States senator. And the things that she says, you would think that her and AOC were contemporaries, that they went to the same school and believed the same things. It, it's just shocking to me the things that we have but yeah i i'd love to just see both of these men uh sing the star spangled banner i think that would be a fantastic thing to see jim big shout out to everybody in chicago listening on wgn thank you sir uh let me see where do we go let's go to michael pendleton oregon talk to us about uh what's going on at the pendleton airbase
11: yes rich hey great talking to you uh great guest uh thank you yes i uh with a future call, I want to. I have some uh, stuff I wanted to support President Trump with, of course, uh, on my next call. But on this call, I was calling in Pendleton, Oregon, out here. We had an air base, uh, Rich, during World War II. Some of your listeners may have known somebody that was at the air base. doolittle's Raiders trained here. That went on the Tokyo Air Raid in uh, April of 1942. And we had some air shows uh, when I was growing up. And they had a B-25 Mitchell bomber. And uh, I think this was back in the 80s, 1980s. And I got to go in the bomber sit in the pilot seat. And when I was younger, I always wanted to be a pilot. And that was a big thrill, to sit there in that seat. And I tried to imagine being a pilot on that Tokyo Air Raid, flying in that plane. Wow. And But I got to sit in the B-25 Mitchell bomber.
2: But, you know, Michael, that, that's a cool story. And I remember I, I didn't even get to go inside. But as a kid, my dad used to take me to Coney Island to the boardwalk when I was a kid. we I grew up in Brooklyn. And uh, we would go and watch the Blue Angels do an air show every 4th of July over Coney Island Beach. And it was always quite the spectacle. And I loved watching it. That so They did a great air show. And they had these, you know, vendors on the street that would sell these inflatable uh, like F-35s or F-15s or whatever jet it was that they sold uh, at that time, but a big blue one. And, and you know, sometimes he'd buy it, sometimes no. But it was just remarkable to watch the the pirouettes and all the um, really cool things that they did. And, and it impressed me as a kid. And something you were saying about getting inside uh, the bomber. Um, there is a, um, a program director that I had when I worked in New York City on local radio on uh, WABC, and... Um, my uh, program director at the time, a guy named Dave Labrosi. He's actually um, uh, a head honcho now at uh, KDKA in Pittsburgh. But Dave once told me when he was like 15 years old, he went in a radio studio and threw the cans on his ears and uh, just started talking away on that microphone because you know he always wanted to be a radio guy. And and eventually, you know, had a phenomenal career uh, on air and then as an executive within radio and still is. And And it it reminded me of of your story, honestly, uh, with, you know, getting in there and dreaming of what your next step in life is going to be. And sometimes I think that's what you need. You know, Uh, like the old saying, it's okay to have your head in the clouds as long as you keep both feet on the ground. Michael in Pendleton, Oregon. God bless you, my friend. K-U-M-A coming right back. Don't go anywhere. Rich Valdez.
4: This
1: is America at Night with Rich Valdez.
5: Rich Valdez, who, again, will do a fine
2: job, and I know you'll enjoy listening to it.
1: This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All
2: right, here we go. It's uh, round two at a speed round. Let's go to David, White Valley, Pennsylvania, KDKA. Uh, Tell me, what's going on in America, brother?
6: Hey, I love listening
11: to you every single damn night. I'm telling you you so much.
2: I appreciate you listening.
11: Well, that's I don't understand how many people in this country don't understand what's going on. It, it really bugs the hell out of me.
2: They're not listening to the show. That's, I think that's the problem. And I don't mean to toot my own horn. I mean, I think they're just not listening to, to somebody that's telling the other side of the story. They if, if people don't pay attention to what's going on or you only listen to one side of the story, you're done. And when you look at CNN or you watch MSNBC or you see what's going on on any of the... Um, the, the left wing channels, they, they rarely ever give you any context. And if they give you any clip, it's Trump saying something and they're taking it out of context. So, of course, they're going to misrepresent the facts. David, thanks for your call. I appreciate it. Lee Burlington, Vermont, WVMT. I understand your husband is also a World War Two hero. Tell us about it. <laughs>
10: Well, he didn't fly the planes, but he was in the unit that developed the tests for selecting out the best candidates to become pilots, bombardiers, and navigators. And they had different characteristics, and they used not only pencil and paper questions about their abilities, but they also did biographical inventories of what their experiences had been. And they Mm -hmm. found that the best pilots were the eldest of Farm families because they had experience with large equipment. They had situations where they had to make fast decisions, and they were very observant. And my husband also taught them to look for the edges of the tarps that the Germans put over their wow. airstrips.
2: It's very detailed, and you know, it's. I guess that's all important. I've never flown a plane in my life. It's on my bucket list of things to do, uh, but. Lee, thank you. In the essence of time, I bid you adieu. And uh, shout out to our buddy Paul in Boise, Idaho, listening online, Rich Valdez America at night. He wants to extend his condolences to the families of the three service members that were murdered uh, because of Joe Biden's dereliction of duty. Thank you, Paul. Big shout out to everybody who called tonight. And of course, hasta la próxima. Until the next time, take care, good night, and God bless you, America. I'm Rich Valdez.